Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. There's been a lot of action over the last couple of days in the U.S. stock market. In fact, the market just closed a few minutes ago. It is now after 10 p.m. in the evening here in Italy. If you don't already know by now, I am out here in Italy with my son. Uh, And that's why I'm not recording as many podcasts as I normally would, although I did record a podcast with my friend Simon Black of Sovereign Man. I'm actually staying with Simon and some other guests of his for a few days in Umbria. Uh, We leave tomorrow uh, for Florence, then Venice, and then home. Um, So I recorded a podcast with Simon yesterday, and we talked for about an hour. So if you want more material, uh, just go and have a listen to that because you'll get over another hour uh, discussion. Also, you know, I put up the YouTube video this morning that I meant to put it up a couple of weeks ago, and we totally forgot to make it public. And what I did is I, I uploaded the uh, kind of debate that I had with Art Laffer on CNBC because Art was going on television all over the place talking about how the economy was great, everything was fantastic. And by the way, we should turn over the power of the Federal Reserve to Donald Trump or the president because he's doing such a great job and he would do a better job of managing the Fed because he's doing such a great job with the economy. So I wanted to upload that uh, debate to show just how completely clueless Art Laffer was in 2006 about the economy under George Bush. Well, the economy under Trump is in even worse shape than that one. This is a bigger bubble. It's even more screwed up. And we are on the verge of an even bigger crisis. Well, he couldn't see the last crisis. He is just as blind to this one. But I wanted to put that up at the time and just totally forgot to make it public. So that's public. So you can also check that out. But let me get to what's been going on in the market. You know, the Dow Jones today was up almost 400 points, about 380 points. That's about how much it was down yesterday. I think we were down about 400. So net decline, but two rather big moves in the market. And in fact, this morning, the Dow was negative. I mean, it was down maybe 50 to 100 points, and it probably would have uh, continued to go down, but for Donald Trump's 
uh, complete retreat when it comes to the trade war. And I'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to talk to the numbers that came out early in the morning before we got the trade news. And that was the CPI numbers for July. And before the number came out, the price of gold was rising. It was up over 20 bucks. We hit a new high today in the price of gold, new six-year high. I think we were at about 1535. And, and so that's $24 or so gain in the price of gold. Silver was up even more, maybe 35, 40 cents. So it looked like uh, the gold stocks were going to have a really, really good day uh, early this morning. And then at 8.30 in the morning, New York time, we got the July consumer prices. And the expectation was for an increase of 0.2, right? And we ended up getting 0.3. So we beat it, higher number. The year-over-year -year CPI, which was supposed to come in at 1.7, came in at 1.8. And then if you just look at the core, which is uh, less food and energy, they were looking for a gain of 0.2 and we got a gain of 0.3. And probably more significant, we got a gain of 0.3 last month as well. This is the first time that we have had back-to-back 0.3% gains in core CPI since 2001. So clearly, Inflation is becoming a problem, and it's going to become an even bigger problem. Year-over-year year core, up 2.2 versus expectations of 2.1. So immediately, as soon as the markets got a whiff of hotter-than-expected consumer price inflation, the gold market immediately sold off. And I knew that was going to happen. I mean, that is the way uh, the lemmings uh, trade, because according to the conventional wisdom, if inflation is higher then the Fed will be less likely to cut rates. After all, they're cutting rates because inflation is too low. And if inflation comes in hotter, well, then there's less of a reason for the Fed to cut rates. And so paradoxically, higher inflation is seen as being bad for gold. And the reason I'm saying paradoxically is because gold is an inflation hedge. Normally, the more inflation, the more you want to buy gold. But if you think the Fed is going to fight inflation, well, then maybe you don't want to buy gold. But if you think the Fed is going to fight inflation, you are wrong. There is no way the Fed is going to fight inflation. I don't even care how high it is. But meanwhile, they don't care about whether it's 0.3 or 0.2 in the core. They don't care if the headline is 2.3 or 2.2. They want symmetrical inflation. And symmetrical is a number above 2%. And they don't really care how high it is. So one of these days, the traders have to realize that these numbers don't matter. I mean, maybe they matter to the public who has to live with a rising cost of living, but they don't matter to the Fed. The Fed is going to take rates back to zero no matter what these numbers are, because the economy is going into recession even as inflation rises. So it doesn't matter. Eventually, the traders are going to start buying gold when the inflation numbers are higher than expected, not selling it. But that is what initially got the gold market to sell off. That was the that was the the, the first punch. But the second punch, because gold got a one-two punch today, was after uh, President Trump came out and just out of the blue said that he was going to delay the implementation of the tariffs that were supposed to uh, come into effect on the first, and now he pushed it off sometime into December. And then there were a number of goods 
that we're going to be subject to these extra 10% tariffs where the tariffs were removed. Where So in some cases, they were called off completely. And in some cases, um, they were just delayed. Now, what concession did Trump get from the Chinese for calling off the tariffs that he just threatened to impose? Nothing. Nothing. The Chinese gave nothing. They basically called the president's bluff and the president folded. That's basically what happened. Now, Trump tried to say that, well, in the past, the Chinese have promised to buy big amounts of agriculture. We'll see if it's different this time, which means maybe the, the, the Chinese told Trump, hey, if you call off the tariffs, we'll buy more agriculture. But if they've already promised to buy more agriculture, but failed to deliver, why would Trump believe him now? And of course he wouldn't. He's just trying to save face. The reality is he bluffed and the Chinese didn't buy it. And of course, what does this mean? This means that Donald Trump can no longer threaten the Chinese with additional tariffs because he already did that and he turned out to be bluffing. So he's not going to be able to use it again as a negotiation tool. So either he puts on uh, tariffs or he shuts up, right? He can't just uh, bark and not bite. The Chinese aren't going to buy that anymore. So I think the president looks very weak. I mean, maybe the markets are celebrating the fact that we're not going to have these extra tariffs. And, you know, later on in the day, there was a press conference and Trump was asked, you know, why did you do this? And his excuse was Christmas was coming, right? Although, I mean, we're far away from Christmas. This is August. Christmas, not until December. But he said that he didn't want to take a chance on screwing up the uh, Christmas shopping season. And so in order to make sure that shopping went well, he is calling off the tariffs. Now, first of all, we didn't just come up with the Christmas holiday. I mean, obviously, Trump knew about Christmas a couple of weeks ago when he threatened these tariffs. So I don't know what's changed between then and now. I mean, it's just a couple of weeks later and Christmas is, is still coming. But think about this. Donald Trump continued to say, including today, including in a tweet today, that the Americans pay nothing, that all of the costs of the tariffs are being paid by the Chinese. So in other words, all the tax revenue that we are collecting in tariffs is a gigantic Christmas present from the Chinese. That is what the president has been saying. Well, why are we returning that Christmas present? I mean, it's not even Christmas and we're returning that gift, right? Obviously, if Donald Trump is concerned that the tariffs might hurt Christmas shopping, then he knows that what he's saying is BS. Because the only way that the tariffs will hurt Christmas is if the consumer has to pay the cost. And if you drive up the price of toys or whatever else we're importing from China, that means parents can afford to buy fewer presents to put under the tree or slip in the stockings. And so to avoid that, to make sure that the parents aren't stuck with a higher cost of toys or everything else, right? Trump is calling off or postponing the tariffs. So you know he is full of it. He continues to speak out of both sides of his mouth. He tries to have his cake and eat it too. Well, basically, the Chinese are going to end up eating his lunch. This trade war is lost. The only question is, when do we surrender and how do we admit defeat? Again, I don't think we're going to get any kind of deal. Uh, the election is going to come and go. And again, you know, Trump is probably not going to get reelected because of the economy. You know, the economy is weakening. In fact, now 
most of the major Wall Street firms are now calling for recession before the election. Most of these big banks are also calling for the Fed to go back to zero and to return to quantitative easing. Now, wait a minute. I was saying this before any of these big banks, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Bank of America, all these guys were optimistic. The Fed's going to keep hiking. They're going to keep shrinking their balance sheet. I'm the only guy out there saying, no, they're not. They're going back to zero. They're doing more QE. The economy's going into recession. Now, all of a sudden, everybody is saying that. Although not everybody, but certainly a significant uh, percentage of the big banks are now saying the same thing as me. Now, of course, none of them are going to credit me for having been right first when they were all wrong. But the point is, these banks still don't get it. Even though they know we're going into recession, they don't really understand why. And even though the Fed is going back to zero, they still don't get why they're doing it. And more importantly than that, they don't get the consequences. They don't understand the adverse consequences that this is going to unleash, that it's not going to be a repeat of the QE1, QE2, QE3, where everybody made money, where the stock market went up, consumer prices didn't, the dollar went up, everybody was fine, right? That ain't going to happen. It's going to be completely different, and they still don't get it, right? I get it because I've been consistent. I understood from the very beginning that the Fed's plan could not succeed, that they could never normalize rates, that they would have to go back to zero, that they could never shrink their balance sheet, that they would have to call it off and then do more QE, because I understood the problem back then, and I still understand the problem now, and I understand the consequences. The big Wall Street firms didn't understand the economy back then, and they still don't understand it now, and they still don't get the consequences. But the important thing is now they are calling for a recession, and they're calling for QE and rate cuts. They just don't realize that it's not going to work, but it is going to happen. And because it is going to happen, that means that there is a much higher likelihood that Donald Trump is not the next president. And we could have somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who now in some betting polls, I think, is now in front of, uh, of Joe Biden and could be the Democratic nominee. And one of the scary things about Elizabeth Warren is if you look at a lot of the things that Elizabeth Warren is saying now about the economy, she sounds like me. She's saying it's an unsustainable bubble, it's a product of cheap money and artificially low interest rates, that we're headed for a huge crash. She's 100% right. The problem is she's 100% wrong about why the economy is so screwed up and her solutions only make the problem much, much worse. But that's not going to matter because if you have Elizabeth Warren saying the economy is about to crash, just like I was, and you have in you know, 2006 on the Kudlow Show, and you have Donald Trump saying everything is great, just like Art Laffer was saying, and then the economy implodes, and you have one candidate that called it right, that said we we're headed for a crash, and you have the president who said everything is great, it's the greatest economy ever, there's nothing to worry about, and by the way, it's all because of me, and then the economy crashes, and Trump is wrong, and Warren is right, who are the voters going to vote for? Pretty obvious. Also, by the way, too, even before we got the CPI numbers today, I think yesterday a story came out that we had very sharp increases, like three and a half percent year over year increases at Walmart. So the prices of goods are already starting to rise at Walmart by a pace that is well in excess of the two percent symmetrical target that the Federal Reserve now has. And obviously, this is very problematic 
uh, that the cost of living is going up. And this is just the beginning. I mean, the signs are there that prices are going to go up. But, you know, these central banks, I, you know, the, the day after I recorded my last podcast, and this is some scary stuff, right? The day after my last podcast, in response to the drop in the value of the Chinese yuan, right, where the yuan went below seven. Now, of course, it hasn't fallen much more since then. It's been pretty stable. But in response to that, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand unexpectedly, out of the blue, slashed their interest rates from one and a half percent, which was already like a historic low, I think, to one percent, which is a historic low. So from one and a half to one, 50 basis points, completely by surprise. Now, why did they do that? They have a healthy economy. The statistics all look good, growth good, unemployment low, right? Inflation is between two and three percent. What are they doing? Why are they slashing rates when they're already low? Right? And what the central bank said was they are worried that the weakness in the yuan could end up bringing down the cost of imports, right, for New Zealanders, that their currency is strengthening and it might bring down import costs and that might bring the inflation rate down closer to 2% when they want to keep it between 2 and 3 So to preemptively prevent the annual cost of living from rising too slowly, they slashed interest rates. Now, of course, this is all a bunch of nonsense. What is wrong with prices rising more slowly? I mean, what if prices actually fell? What's wrong with that? That'd be a great deal. Right? It's great if you can buy things for less money. That's how you have a higher standard of living. Of course, though, what the Reserve Bank really means, right? Because I, I mentioned this, too, again, when I talked with Simon Black yesterday. But this is all nonsense. Nobody is dumb enough to believe that we need rising prices. Nobody really thinks that the consumer is worried that his cost of living is not going up fast enough, right? That's, a, that's the number one priority. I want to make sure that when I go to the supermarket, it costs me more than when I went last time. And if it doesn't cost me more, I'm really worried. I might stop shopping for food. I just might starve if the cost of food isn't going up or the cost of health care or the cost of education or my rent. Everybody wants uh, their cost of living to go up as little as possible. And if it goes down, then that's even better, right? That's what everybody wants. This is simple stuff. What the Reserve Bank in New Zealand is really concerned about is if there is a global economic slowdown, right? If that's what's going on, if the, if the global economy is slowing, and if the New Zealand economy were to go into recession, what the Reserve Bank is worried about is there's not enough inflation, given that interest rates are one and a half percent right now, that they don't have enough room to cut to try to stimulate. So what they want is to get the inflation rate higher so that real interest rates can be a bigger negative number, right? Because this is the, the lunacy of central banks is once they've made the mistake of lowering rates to the point where we're near zero, Instead of realizing that lower rates are the problem, right, that they've been starting fires rather than putting them out, instead of recognizing that what they did was wrong, they now have to invent new ways to bring rates even lower than zero. And so to do that, they have to cause the rate of inflation to go up. And, and get all these central banks are doing this. Nobody wants a strong currency anymore because a strong currency means you'll have a lower rate of inflation. And so if everybody is weakening their currency, to create more inflation, well, what's going to happen? The world is going to drown in an ocean of inflation and gold is going ballistic. And in fact, when gold sold off today because of the de-escalation of trade tensions, because Trump basically surrendered, right? When you took the threat of additional tariffs off the table, people sold gold. 
But the people who are selling gold don't get it. Gold is not going up because of the tariffs. Gold is going up because of what the Reserve Bank of New Zealand did and because that's what all the central banks are doing. The Fed has cut rates. They're going to keep cutting rates. They're going back to quantitative easing. Every central bank has bought into this nonsense that we must have inflation and that interest rates need to be negative. Inflation needs to be high enough to have real negative rates all over the globe. That's where we are heading, right? And, and so if that is the case, people have no place to hide except gold. And that is why they're buying. And of course, central banks know that this means that we're reaching the end of the road on this experiment with fiat money. And central banks are preparing to back their currencies with gold. I mean, look what happened in Argentina. Argentina had an election that went the wrong way, and the Argentine pesos dropped 25% in one day. And then the stock market went down too. So in, in dollar terms, the market got cut in half in a single day. That is how dangerous it is to be in a fiat currency. Think about how high the price of gold went up in Argentine pesos in one day. It went up by 50% in one day, right? So this shows you the danger. And if it can happen in Argentina, it can happen in the United States. In fact, I often say that if you want to know which nation uh, you should look to for America's future, it's Argentina. It's not Japan. People keep saying, oh, what if we what if we become Japan? I mean, there's no way we're going to get off that easy. We're not the next Japan. We're the next Argentina. But, you know, countries all around the world, these central banks are, have put themselves in this box. And that's why gold is going up because inflation is going up and because there's nothing the central banks are going to do about it. Interest rates are artificially low and inflation is going to take off until there's a crisis, right? There is going to be a currency crisis, not just a collapse of the peso. There's going to be a real currency crisis. It's not a currency war. That's not what we're having here. We're going to have a currency crisis. We're going to have a U.S. dollar crisis because the dollar is at the epicenter of the global fiat monetary system. And one of the reasons that I'm the most bearish on the dollar and the U.S. economy is because America has the most to lose from a currency crisis because we are the ones who issue the world's reserve currency. And so we derive a benefit that no other country has. And so if this system falls apart, the country that benefited the most from the system loses the most when it collapses. And America is going to lose the most. Our standard of living is going to fall the most, right? And that's why I want to be invested abroad. That's why I want to own foreign stocks and not U.S. stocks. I want to have foreign currencies, not U.S. currencies. But I also want to make sure I own gold because every single currency in the world is going to lose value relative to gold. I mean, right now, gold keeps making new all-time record highs in just about every currency in the world. The only exception right now being the dollar, but right now, you know, that exception is going to prove the rule. There's no way that the gold is not going to make a new all-time record high in terms of dollars. And it's going to make that high a lot faster than people think. In fact, we got the budget deficit numbers, I think, yesterday. Uh, last month's deficit, much, much bigger than expected. In fact, the deficit for 2019 is already bigger than the deficit for all of 2018. And we're not even finished with the year yet. And of course, this is just you know, the tip of the iceberg. This is just the expenditures that are on budget. We're not even counting any of the, the off-budget items. And in fact, look at the national debt. I think while I was in Italy, we just ticked over 22 and a half trillion. That is the national debt. When Trump came into office, we had just gotten to 20 trillion. Now it's at 22 and a half. So we've 
Basically, we're on a pace to add a trillion dollars a year to the debt, except the pace is picking up right now. So by the end of this year, or by January of next year, I think we'll be higher. Maybe, you know, we'll be well above 23 trillion. We could be at 23 and a half trillion. And then the fourth year of the Trump presidency, we could add a couple of trillion in that year alone, assuming we're not in a recession. If we're in recession, we're going to add even more than that. So these ballooning deficits are one of the reasons that we know uh, that massive money printing is coming. And that is why people are buying gold. Now, if I'm going to talk about gold, of course, I got to talk a little bit about Bitcoin because a lot of people were talking about Bitcoin as a hedge. You know, Bitcoin, in fact, even got more press, I think, on CNBC than gold. You know, the day the Chinese yuan uh, moved below uh, seven uh, for the first time in quite some time. And you had a move up in the price of gold. You had a move up in Bitcoin. Uh, the media was giving a lot of positive press to Bitcoin. Oh, look, it's a hedge. You see, it's going up. And on the day that the yuan fell below seven, right? So you got more than seven yuan for your dollar. That was on a Sunday. It was August 4th. And Bitcoin was trading around 11,000 at that time. And over the next day or two, it rallied up to 12,000. So about an 8% move, which was bigger than the move that gold made, maybe about twice the size of the gold move. And oh, this is great. Look, Bitcoin is acting just like a safe haven. It's acting just like gold. And at the time I was saying, and I was tweeting that no, that nobody was buying Bitcoin as a safe haven. I mean, buying Bitcoin as a safe haven is like buying Beyond Meat as a safe haven. There's nothing safe about Bitcoin. But I do believe that a lot of speculators were buying Bitcoin because they knew that there would be speculation that Bitcoin was being bought as a hedge and there'd be a lot of media attention. And maybe some people thought people would actually be dumb enough to buy it as a hedge. But what I think more people were doing was front running the, the idea that people would think it would be a hedge and they would try to get out in front of that trade by buying Bitcoin. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that Bitcoin rallied along with gold. But gold was rallying because it actually is a hedge. Bitcoin was rallying on the speculation that it was digital gold and therefore would be a hedge, but that was all wrong. Anyway, uh, today, uh, gold is still about 4% higher than it was uh, on that August 4th, 4% up. The Chinese Yuan has barely declined. I mean, we're, we're, we haven't even fallen 1% really below seven. So there's been a tiny loss in the value of Yuan since August 4th. But as I'm speaking, Bitcoin, is 10,900. So Bitcoin is actually slightly below the 11,000 level it was at when uh, China allowed the yuan to go below seven. But if you bought Bitcoin, you know, in the next day or two, you, you might have paid as high as 12,000 to buy Bitcoin. And here it is now, not quite 10% lower. But I mean, think about that. I mean, if somebody actually bought Bitcoin as a hedge and they paid $12,000 for their Bitcoin because they were worried about the yuan losing value, well, the yuan has basically hardly lost any value and your hedge has lost almost 10%. I mean, how could your hedge lose more than what you were hedging? Meaning that if you didn't even hedge, if you just said, screw it, I'm just going to stick with the yuan and if it goes down, I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to hedge, right? You barely lost anything. But if you said, you know, I'm worried about the wand going down, let me hedge, right? Let me take my wand and buy Bitcoin. Well, now you've lost far more wand than you ever would have lost 
in purchasing power terms had you just stuck it out and done nothing because you're already down almost 10%. And the reason I think there could be another big drop in Bitcoin, I mean, at least down around 9,000 very quickly, which is down another couple of thousand points from here, uh, is because I do think that a lot of people piled into the market speculating that the trade war and the weak yuan was going to cause a lot of safe haven money going into Bitcoin. Now, this idea was wrong, but you know, a lot of people believed it. The media was certainly uh, you know, beating that drum. And so a lot of people were buying into it. But it's interesting that Bitcoin in that environment did not make a new high. I mean, it didn't take out the 14,000 high it made about six weeks ago, despite all this good news, right? Everything that could possibly go right for Bitcoin was going right, right? Yet it couldn't make a new high. Why? Because there were people who were selling, right? So who was selling? Somebody was out there satisfying all that buying. I think you've got some whales that are unloading and they took advantage of the hysteria and the hype of the idea that China was going to buy and this thing was going to take off and everyone was talking about new highs, 20,000, 50,000. Meanwhile, we couldn't even take out the $14,000 high from six weeks ago. Now, Trump has basically called off the escalation of the trade war. That's taking the pressure off Yuan. And now I think there's a lot of speculators who bought into Bitcoin who are stuck, right? Because they put on this bet and now what they were betting on isn't happening. So now they want to take their chips off the table. But the problem is, how do you cash out if nobody else wants to cash in? So I think we're going to see another big drop as that spec money leaves and we're going to have to move the market down before the whales step in and stabilize it so they can drive the price up a little bit more so they can keep selling. You know, in the meantime, over the last few days, the Bitcoin market cap, its dominance, actually got as high as 70%. That's another new high. And again, I've been pointing this out as a bearish sign uh, overall. And you keep hearing people in the crypto community, they're saying, oh, this is good news because it proves that Bitcoin is the winner. It validates Bitcoin and it proves that Bitcoin is digital gold. It doesn't prove anything. The fact that other cryptocurrencies are losing value simply proves that Bitcoin can lose value too. I mean, the similarities between Bitcoin and every other cryptocurrency far outweigh uh, uh, the differences. So if you know the altcoins can collapse, Bitcoin is next. It's all about confidence. Once upon a time, everybody was very confident in these altcoins. And now if they lose confidence, well, they can lose confidence in Bitcoin. This is simply a look into what can happen and what will happen to Bitcoin. But of course, the people who have drunk the Bitcoin Kool-Aid, as far as they're concerned, all news is bullish. And that there's nothing that can possibly happen that would turn them bearish. Of course, eventually, what's going to turn them bearish is going to be the collapse in the price of Bitcoin. Because number one, one of the reasons that people even need Bitcoin is to buy the altcoins. It was like an on-ramp. You know, you, you wanted to buy the altcoins. In order to buy them, you had to pay in Bitcoin. So that was driving the demand. But also a lot of these altcoin companies and these startups, you know, their altcoins are collapsing, but, you know, they have rent to pay, they have salaries to pay. So what are they going to do? They got to sell their Bitcoin that they might have to pay those salaries. And, you know, by the way, people are, you know, giving me shit on the Internet. You know, New Zealand came out and I guess they passed some kind of law making it legal to pay salaries in Bitcoin, although I don't know why they needed the law. I don't think it was illegal, but maybe they just kind of clarified the rules. And people are like, ah, you see, Peter Schiff, you said nobody would want a salary in Bitcoin. And here, you know, they're making it legal to pay salaries in Bitcoin in New Zealand. They are not paying salaries in Bitcoin. People are not getting a job 
where their salary is one Bitcoin a month, right? They are getting a dollar salary, and in this case, a New Zealand dollar salary. And then when it comes time to get paid, their employer is calculating the exchange rate between New Zealand dollars and Bitcoin, and then paying them the equivalent value in Bitcoin. That is not the same thing as negotiating a salary in Bitcoin. But of course, once the New Zealand worker who decides he wants to get paid in Bitcoin, and I'm sure there's not going to be many who are going to do that because it's going to increase their transaction costs because most people that get a paycheck, they just go ahead and spend it, right? They're not just stocking it away. They're pretty much spending what they earn, at least in America. Maybe New Zealand is not that reckless, but I'm sure people spend most of their paychecks. So the minute they go to spend their Bitcoin, they have to convert it to New Zealand dollars. They got to pay their rent. Their landlord doesn't want Bitcoin. They got to go grocery shopping. The, 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 the market doesn't want Bitcoin. They, you know, whatever they do, they got to pay their utilities. They got to pay their phone bill. You know, they got to, whatever they do, they have to keep selling their Bitcoins to get the currencies that the merchants and other parties are wanting to be paid in. Uh, and so this doesn't validate anything. And I never said that there weren't some people who might want their bosses to convert their paychecks to, to Bitcoin. I think it's a very small number relative to the population. But what Bitcoin has to do to be money and something it will never do is you have to have salaries that are in Bitcoin. You have to have a reliable, stable store of value so that employers and employees can negotiate Bitcoin based compensation and have clarity into what that compensation is worth in terms of other goods and services. And that will never happen uh, with Bitcoin. But meanwhile, even with that news, if you want to consider that more good news, Bitcoin is going down, right? And if an asset just doesn't go up on good news, you keep throwing all this good news at it and the market doesn't go up, well, where's it going? It's obviously, it's going down. Well, what, you know, one thing I wanted to point out, or another thing rather, and I, I went over this story on my podcast months ago, and I didn't realize there was more to it, but I, I got this letter from the IRS delivered to my house in Puerto Rico. And so I had to have my housekeeper, she opened it up and you know copied it uh, so I can see what it says. Because of course I get a letter from the IRS, I need to know what's in it. I can't wait till I get back to Puerto Rico. I gotta open that thing up. And if you recall, I mentioned before that I filed a form late with respect to a house that I had moved into a trust that I had just set up. And it was the, I had just set up the trust and the house was the first asset that I put into this trust. And the trust had beneficiaries, mainly my kids, right? So, but I put the house into the trust and it's, you know, a very common estate planning, you know, thing, asset protection. A lot of people do it. It's not something, you know, exotic. It's certainly not illegal, right? Anyway, uh, when you do that, you have to file a form. Now, that wasn't always the case, but I think maybe 2014 or 13, whatever, was maybe the first year, the IRS says you got to file this form whenever you put an asset into a trust and you have to file annually and you have to tell the IRS, you know, what's in the trust every year, how much it's worth, stuff like that. So the first year we did it, for whatever reason, I was switching accountants. Uh, each person thought the other person filed it. I had no idea it was even due and I filed this form wrong. And I got a penalty years later, I don't know how many, several years after I filed the form, I got a penalty from the IRS because the form was filed late and the penalty was $200,000, which I thought was incredible, $200,000. It was basically 5% of the value of the asset of, in this case, the house. And so I thought this was crazy uh, that, you know, they would do that, right? I thought this has got to be, you know, a violation of the Eighth Amendment, right? The Eighth Amendment, among other things, says that there shall not be any 
unreasonable penalties. And I thought, what could be more unreasonable than a $200,000 penalty for filing a form late, right? It wasn't even filed very late. I don't know, a few months late. Uh, there was no tax due. Uh, the government got whatever information it needed. Had it had the information a few weeks or a few months earlier, it would be immaterial. It would make no difference. So a $200,000 fine, I thought, uh, was absurd. And I didn't know anything could be more absurd until I got this next letter. What I found out is actually there were two forms that I was supposed to file. I'm supposed to file a form for whatever assets I transfer into the trust. And then I have to file another form letting the IRS know I have the trust and what's in it. So the $200,000 penalty applied to the form that related to the trust itself, right? Which was, and the only thing the trust had was this house. The other form has to do with the transfer of the asset, which in this case was the same house because the only thing the trust had was the house. So in this case, uh, the, 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 the transfer and the value of the trust were exactly the same because I funded the trust with one asset and then that's all the asset had. But the penalty for filing that form late is 35% of the value of the asset. So my penalty for telling the IRS late that I put my house into a trust was $1.4 million. Then I got another $200,000 penalty for, for not telling them about the trust on the other form. So my total penalties that I owe the IRS is $1.6 million. I mean, it is completely absurd that the IRS can penalize me. I mean, that is complete confiscation of property. They're basically seizing the house because first of all, the house isn't even worth that much money. Uh, it's depreciated in value quite a bit since I made the gift. Uh, and so the whole thing is nonsense that the IRS could basically seize my property, $1.6 million penalty for filing two forms late that, that required no payment of tax. It's basically just giving the government some information. And in fact, once I told the government that I put the asset into the trust, well, then it's obvious that it's in the trust. Why do I have to file the second form? The second form didn't give them any additional information that they didn't get from the first form. Now, of course, my, my, my accounts are telling me that at least they think the IRS is wrong in that I didn't file the other form late because I had an extension that year to file my tax return. And because I had an extension to file my return, I also had an extension to file this form. And I filed this form timely with that extension. So in one case, I didn't file it late. The other case, I did file it late, but I mean, a $200,000 penalty is absurd. But anyway, I've had to appeal this. I'm, you know, the whole thing I'm being told could take almost a year to resolve. In the meantime, interest is accumulating. Now, if I get the whole thing thrown out, well, then I don't have to pay the interest. But if I don't get it thrown out, then I'm going to have to pay interest, you know, late penalties on this $1.6 million. But all of it is derived from taking one house and transferring it to my own trust for myself. I mean, no taxable income involved, no tax owed. I mean, if this is not an unreasonable, excessive fine rather, within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment, then I don't know what is. Now, the question is, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to make the constitutional challenge. I mean, hopefully I beat this thing and so it never gets challenged, but obviously this can't be constitutional. I mean, there's no way that you could justify this because if they can charge you $1.4 million or $1.6 million for filing a form late. And I'm not a huge corporation, right? I'm not, you know, 
you know, this gigantic Facebook or Amazon where you could say, well, you know, a company with that kind of money. I'm just one individual. And if you look at the penalty in relation to the value of the property, it's 40% of the value. But actually, if you look at the real market value of the property, it's much higher. It's more like 60% of the value of my property. I mean, you have to sell the property, right? I mean, what if I didn't have other resources? What if I was just forced to sell my property to pay this ridiculous penalty? So there's no way that this could be constitutional. But the fact that the IRS would even do that, that shows you how little respect for the Constitution the government currently has. Anyway, that's it for today. Again, I'm on the road. I'm not going to be back until next week. So other than some crazy thing that happens in the market, I probably won't record another podcast until I am back in in Puerto Rico. But watch my Twitter. If you don't follow me on Twitter, make sure and follow me. Oh, by the way, you know, while I'm talking about Twitter, I almost forgot my son, Spencer, who a lot of you follow on Twitter, pointed out a statistic to me today, just before I started to record the podcast. And I almost forgot. But when I spoke about Twitter, I remembered it. And it's a, it's a very interesting statistic. But if you take a look at the market cap of the S&P 500, and you relate it to the market cap of the Russell 2000, right? So you take big multinational stocks relative to smaller uh, domestically oriented companies, that the market cap of the domestic Russell 2000 companies relative to the market cap of the S&P 500 is now sitting at the lowest it's been since 2009, March of 2009 to be exact, which really is the bottom of the market. That was the low point for the stock market following the 2008 financial crisis. So you have to go all the way back to that date, right, to find the Russell 2000 as low in relationship to the S&P as it is right now. Now, if you remember, when Donald Trump was elected president, the Russell 2000 had the biggest rally because everybody thought this is great for the domestic companies. We're getting domestic tax cuts. It's going to be a boom for the U.S. economy. We're going to make America great again. And so we had a big rise in those stocks, much bigger than the initial rise we had in the S&P 500. But that rally has completely faded. We've reversed the entire gain on a relative basis, and we're back down at the lows. And what does that tell you? That tells you that reality hasn't lived up to the hype that there is no boom in the domestic economy, that the domestically focused stocks are weakening relative to the internationally focused stocks, that domestically focused stocks have not been this weak in relation to the global stocks since the lows in March of 2009. And you know what? We're probably going to take out those lows because the U.S. economy, contrary to what Wall Street wants to say and contrary to what Donald Trump keeps saying, is a disaster. And it is going to play right into the hands of Elizabeth Warren or whoever it is that gets that Democratic nomination. But anyway, so it, barring any you know real crazy thing that might happen, I'm probably not going to do another podcast. But follow me on Twitter because I'll put out some tweets. That's easy to do. I can do that from my cell phone as I'm sightseeing with my kids. So watch my Twitter account. So make sure and sign up there. Follow me on Facebook. I'll put some posts up there. So it's not just the podcast. This is not the only way I communicate. I'm communicating through social media. So if you're not following me on those other other media outlets, uh, make sure and do it.